Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Women in Compliance podcast. I'm Mary Shirley and I co-host this podcast uh, which is on the Compliance Podcast Network with my partner in compliance or work wife, um, Lisa Fine. This is the second of a two-part series with a healthcare focus. And our guest today is Melanie Sponholtz, Chief Compliance Officer of WCP Healthcare at WAD Capital Partners. Welcome, Melanie. Will you tell us about your career to date? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. This is so exciting. Um, and uh, yes, I would be, I will try to, slim it down because it's kind of, you know, long story, <laughs> my, my career in healthcare. So I actually, um, actually it's a second career for me. So I, I was an English major in college and I worked in publishing for about five years and, uh, I was volunteering at a hospital in New York city. And I, you know, I think it was the, the contrast between working with a manuscript all day and, Mm -hmm. the, all the human interaction I was getting mm -hmm. at the hospital, but I just loved it. I loved my volunteer work and I just thought, you know what, I'm going to switch fields, you know, I, while, while I still have the option, I went back to school and I originally thought maybe medical school and, and I did a post-bac pre-med program, but at the very end of it, I had this existential crisis where I was like, no, I want to have kids and I'm not even going to be done my general residency until I'm 38 if I do this. And so at the last minute, I changed course and went and got my degree in physical therapy. So that's how I went into healthcare initially. It was wow. going as a PT, um, mm -hmm. which I loved. It was, it was a great career, but um, I, I just, I found I, um, I wanted more, um, I guess, autonomy and, and I wanted to have more say in kind of the direction things went in the organization I was in. And so I, I ended up, uh, well, first I became an operational director, which was interesting because um, I was overseeing a bunch of home care therapists in a, in a big swath of Pennsylvania at the time. And um, so it, it's really been great in retrospect because I understand what it's like to manage productivity and and look at you know profit and loss statements all the time and help people make meet, meet their productivity goals and I did that for a, a little while and then with that same organization I had the opportunity to take the role as their director of quality assurance and professional development which was super fun because I was working on helping people you know increase their professional skills and looking at ways we can improve you know do process improvement and quality assurance. Um, and then like many people, I fell into compliance, many people who are in compliance. So, you know, we were working, you know, with consultants and a uh, legal team and they were evaluating the company and they said, you know what, you really need a, a formal compliance program and a compliance officer. And I got voluntold that I would be this compliance officer. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. uh, and you know what, I actually... It's funny because I, you know, for I had I for a while I thought, well, you know, is this really what I want to do? Because you know, people have this negative view of compliance and mm. that it's, it's you know that you're the the no department or the business mm -hmm. restriction department. And, and mm -hmm. you know what, I, I really fell in love with it because mm -hmm. I, I I still feel like in my mind I 
I still want to care for people and interact positively for people, which is why I went in to healthcare. And now I find ways to do that. Mm. So, Mm -hmm. and then that kind of just like morphed. So I stayed in compliance, but I left the rehabilitation field. And then I was in home infusion for a number of years and um, as a compliance officer. And um, that's when I started talking to Wad Capital. um, And this job just sounded so interesting because it's this opportunity to work with all of their healthcare portfolio companies, which right now is about eight. Um, and I, I really help with everything from our due diligence when we're purchasing a company. And then once they're partnered with us, I go and work with their teams to help build their compliance program and choose their staff and um, just help with strategic planning or any hot spots that pop up. And it's, it's just every day is a new day. It's so interesting. And so now I can't imagine doing anything else. And I'm kind of on a mission to make compliance a little more cool and approachable and, mm-hmm. and let people know that we can be just as much of a team member and, and fun to hang out with as any other area of leadership, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? So, Absolutely. Yeah. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. Fantastic. Many, many great things came out of just your introduction for me, Melanie. Um, So you are my third uh, healthcare great woman in compliance. And interestingly, all of you um, have had prior careers. And and if we count Mark Stanley, who is my great gentleman in compliance in healthcare, um, that was also interviewed. He also, um, he was a chef um, <laughs> originally. Um, Donna, who um, was part one of this episode, um, was a registered nurse. So she's really quite similar to you in terms of you guys were front lines, you know, legitimate actual healthcare staff. Um, and Lisa Estrada was politics um, before. So what I think is really interesting about that is that um, even being in a related area, uh, is not a uh, does not preclude you from ending up in healthcare compliance, um, and it's it's never too late to to start. Um, however, you must begin um, with with good time to spare. So if you leave it too long, one day it will eventually be too late. But if you've decided that the time um, uh, is is right to make a move, then make a start, make the most of it, and. Um, and thinking about that fork in the road that you may find yourself at. Um, And the other thing is that uh, Donna and I spoke about how volunteering um, can, could be a way to help someone transfer into the the healthcare space if they've not already got experience in it. Um, And in your case, what I think this shows as well is that volunteering showed you the light in terms of where your heart was and, and wanting to, to follow your passion. So um, volunteering, it seems, uh, can have a lot of various benefits and many of them may not be the reason why you decided to volunteer in the first place, um, but it helps you in unexpected ways later on. Yeah, I agree. It's kind of like a no pressure zone where you're just experiencing something and and connecting with it or not connecting with it, you know, just so it, it gives your mind kind of that ability to explore different areas. So I think volunteering is a great way to check things out. Yeah. One of the things that I'm best known for is living in five countries across four continents. And you are equally as geography agnostic within the United States, it seems. How has living and working in various states benefited your career? 
Well, you know, it's interesting because I moved around a lot as a kid. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I lived, I mean, nothing like you with all your international travel, but within the U.S., you mm-hmm. know, I we we lived in Pennsylvania. I guess we lived in Canada for a little while when I was mm-hmm. little. We lived in Kansas and Florida. Um, so, you know, every few years I kind of uprooted mm-hmm. and moved. Um, and I think, you know, like parents worry about doing that sometimes. Mm-hmm. But I think for me, it it's made it easier for me to you know, just uh, create a new social network wherever mm-hmm. I go, and and I'm comfortable meeting new people. So I actually am kind of grateful that I had mm-hmm. that experience because it's really made me unafraid to do mm-hmm. it as an adult. So I mean, I think I think for me, it's just opened the possibilities in my mm-hmm. career because I don't feel like you know, oh, I can't, you know, and then even, even, you know, as in my early adult life, um, you know, my husband's job, we moved a lot as well. So like my, like I have three daughters, for instance, they were all born in different states. So one was (laughs) born in Michigan, one in Rhode Island and one in Georgia. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I just, I, I think it's fun to go Mm -hmm. explore different things and you learn about yourself and you learn about the fact that the world is different every Mm -hmm. place you go. Um, and I think it made me more attractive as a candidate sometimes mm-hmm. because I'm really open to that. I think today it's interesting because with the pandemic, mm. I think there will be a lot more potential to work in various geographies without actually relocating. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, even in my current job, you know, I stayed in Philadelphia, even though WADA is headquartered in Chicago, but I spent, before the pandemic, I spent about 60% of my time at our portfolio company. So I just mm. traveled. So you might be able to strike a balance now and still get the benefits. You might be able to say, if you're willing to travel X amount, you don't mm-hmm. have to approve everything. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, and I think it's going to make it more of a, um, a competitive job market too, because mm-hmm people are not feeling like, oh, we're in Dallas, we have to hire someone in Dallas, mm. then, you know, that opens it up to who's who's the best candidate, not who's the best candidate in this. Right. Spot. So, um, which is kind of exciting, too. I agree. Uh, I'm looking forward to that prospect. And I, I hope it happens um, that we become more geography agnostic as society and people are then better allowed to follow their personal passions, right? So living potentially with near to where family is or um, near to a place that allows them to do certain hobbies. Um, I think that would be amazing. And I think we've started seeing it a little bit in terms of remote uh, job postings and so on. But I think there is still some reticence to make a job fully remote. Well, and I do think, you know, like we've been pretty successful. Like I, I feel like I've been pretty, pretty capable of maintaining the same level of performance mm-hmm. during the yep. pandemic. But I think that's because I spent investing exactly. so meeting people in person before. Already. Yeah. So I do I think agree. you have to do both. Like, I don't think you yep. can start remote and not go make all those connections. But as long as you're willing to, you know, do some traveling and move around, I think it's totally workable. Yeah, I'm 100% on board with that. Um, I think it would have been a very different story had I personally gone into the pandemic um, with, you know, having joined the company at that time, uh, at the time that we did, I lived in three countries with Fresenius, so I, and I have global roles, so I know a lot of people. 
Um, it would have been so stressful. Um, you know, we're under a monitorship, so I worry about getting things done in, in good way. Actually, I worry about getting things done in good time generally. Um, right. But, you know, without being able to bank some credits that I already had and, you know, transfer some of those credits over, I think it would have been a lot harder. So yeah. that that initial part of the compliance relationship when you join a new organization um, I think no matter how technology evolves, um, you know, even if we can appear as holograph versions of ourselves <laughs> in someone else's living room, I don't think that will ever replace, you know, shaking someone's hand. And I hope shaking hands doesn't go away. Well, it's um, even worse for me because I'm a hugger. So <laughs> like, this is going to be really sense. hard for me. I'm going to have to like <laughs> keep my hands under my arms or something to stop myself. <laughs> <laughs> In, um, in New Zealand, uh, the traditional Māori greeting um, involves touching of noses. And the idea of that is very intimate. It's that you're breathing in the same space. And um, I, I hope that uh, such traditions and customs do not end up uh, eradicated, although I am very much on the side of, of health and safety, <laughs> especially yeah. from a healthcare company. But it is interesting, the implications for the future and in, in, in terms of when we do meet again. Um, I, I heard that there were thoughts about at conferences, uh, different colored bracelets, so that if you, Mel, wanted to give someone a hug and they had, you know, a green bracelet on, then you would know that it's safe to do that because that person's giving permission. And if they had another color, you know, it would mean something else like yeah. verbal only. Oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> we're living in today, right? <laughs> well, let's talk data privacy for a bit. The US has HIPAA um, and some, some other bits and pieces that I'm not so intimately familiar with. Um, high-tech uh, type regulations. And for many other countries, healthcare information is considered sensitive personal information that needs to be afforded the highest levels of protection just because of the nature of it, along with some other types of sensitive information. Will you tell us a little bit about how healthcare companies need to bear data privacy in mind and what current threats there are to healthcare information? So uh, it's become a more and more important area of risk in healthcare organizations. I mean, the, the level of um, hacking and ransomware and you know, all of that has just been skyrocketing. Um, mm. People trying to take advantage of you know, the chaos of the pandemic and their remote workforce. And I think also at the same time, even before the pandemic, it was becoming clear to um, cyber criminal that the, the information you can gain from a healthcare company is super valuable. Uh, it was explained to me once that like, you know, if you get a credit card, say you steal credit card information, mm -hmm. the, those companies are so sophisticated at this point that usually whoever's card that is, is gonna know pretty quickly that someone has accessed their card. You know, you mm -hmm. get that call from American Express or whatever, are you in this place spending this money? Cause they know your patterns and you get caught mm -hmm. pretty. So um, with healthcare, I mean, they can, if they, successfully hack a healthcare organization. I mean, we have so much demographic information about patients, you know, mm -hmm. that it's like a gold mine and it's less likely that someone is going to know right away. So it, it became more valuable, you know, on the dark market or whatever to have that information than to have credit card information. And so they're, they're frequently trying to, 
go after healthcare companies. And so we've been, you know, putting a lot of thought into, you know, what do we do to protect ourselves? And from my perspective, I think, you know, a couple of years ago, it was, it was mostly focused on a security risk assessment with remediation, which is still, of course, important and, you know, required. But I think what we're realizing is you have to go beyond that. So education is super important because you can have the best technology in the world, but you have someone on your team that makes a mistake and all of a sudden someone has access to your Mm -hmm. data. So anti-phishing campaigns and just awareness campaigns so that everyone in an organization has at top of mind what they need to do to protect the data. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that I think, um, recently has has been getting more focus for us is that, you know, again, you could do the, the best effort possible on the technology side um, and the training side, and you can still have something go horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. So the other piece that I think everyone needs to focus on is kind of business continuity planning, like disaster recovery business mm-hmm. continuity. And, and so, you know, what would happen if say, say the hackers were successful tomorrow mm-hmm. and all of your programs were locked down, um, could mm-hmm. you function, you know, mm-hmm. could you function? Um, so I think that's kind of where my mind has been lately. And I'm trying to learn more about that and help my organizations with that, because I think that it's, it's all one big piece of trying to proactively prevent business damage from privacy problems. Absolutely. And massive self-plug here, folks. I'm warning you now. If anyone (laughs) is interested in um, responses to a a data privacy crisis, I will be speaking on a panel um, about this going through uh, the the crisis process of uh, a data breach uh, at the Society of Corporate Compliance um, and Ethics uh, Europe conference, which is coming up in March, although it does occur to me that by the time uh, this episode goes to air, that conference may be over. Um, But uh, I believe that the uh, sessions can be purchased um, uh, on an individual basis a la carte afterwards if if you happen to be interested in that topic. Absolutely. I mean, that that kind of information is is so valuable. And to hear, you know, from a panel of experts, there's so many different pieces of that approach so Mm -hmm. I will definitely be I will definitely be tuning in for that (laughs) (laughs) I'll share the details with you later on (laughs) thank you for indulging me and it occurs to me that there was another question I wanted to ask about the um the many moves that you've done so folks if you would all forgive me for taking a step backwards um I'll go back to the previous topic and ask is there anything that you would suggest for compliance professionals looking to get a job outside of the area in which they're currently based? Yeah, I think, um, what because I, I hire frequently, mm-hmm. just a little plug there. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't <laughs> personally hire frequently, but I help our companies yeah. hire. So I would say that if your resume says you live in Philadelphia and you're applying mm-hmm. to a job in Colorado or what have you, that you should say something in your cover letter about that um, because a lot of times, you know, that is a question Mm -hmm. and, you know, some companies really do prefer to have people local. Other people may be more open to having some kind of, you know, hybrid remote and Mm on-site relationship. So I would say something in your cover letter about 
you know, I realize, you know, I'm writing to you from Philadelphia, but I'm really interested in relocating mm-hmm. Denver for these reasons. And so this would be great for me. Or, you know, I've, you know, spent a lot of time traveling in my career and I have no problem doing whatever you need to be present. So mm-hmm. I hope you'll consider me, but I would definitely like put that, the elephant is in the room if it's mm-hmm. on the top of your resume. So I would address mm-hmm. it when you apply. That's great advice. Just be upfront and bring it to people's attention. Uh, Something that I do um, is I just always have on my LinkedIn profile um, that I'm willing to relocate and travel for work. Um, Whether I'm looking for a job or not, that's just just there. That's a part of me. Um, And uh, same um, on the, the resume. And if you are someone that does have a track record of moving, So I've been told by um, a recruiter in compliance that um, it's actually not uncommon for deals to fall down when a person applies for a job in another city. um, And then when the discussion comes up about moving, they're like, oh, can I just not stay here? And the employer is saying, well, no, this is where the job is. And we were upfront about that. And then the candidate goes, oh, well, count me out of the process then. Uh Um, which must be I have seen that happen. You don't want to be that person. Yeah. You know, you don't want to be that person. So just be honest with yourself and with them. Like, are you really willing to move? Because I think sometimes people are like, oh, you know, maybe I would. And they get really far into the process and everyone has invested all this time and energy in that process. And then they're like, eh, no, maybe not. (laughs) And then, you know, I think that kind of puts you on the do not call list for that. Absolutely. And that person ruins it for people like us who are willing to move and then we wouldn't be considered potentially by that employer because they've already been burned. So what I would also recommend is when you have a job listed on your LinkedIn or your resume and you have moved around, so you've got a track record of being reliable about these things, don't forget to to state which city each was was in so that you can show that you appear to be someone that is willing to go through with it. Yeah, no, that's really good advice because you're you're absolutely right about that situation. So that's that's a good idea. Yeah, again, I, th- I think I, your point is a great one. Don't kid yourself. It's it's nice to think that you're open minded and, and you probably are about certain things. But if there are some things that are absolute deal breakers, um, be honest with yourself and then be honest with others. There's going to be and discuss it with your family too. Yeah. <laughs> Make sure, make sure that you're not, you know, diving into this, but like your spouse has, you know, has even had that conversation. Yes. Would you be willing to, you know, your partner or your spouse or whoever is in your life, that they'd be willing to go along for the ride? You know? That's what the recruiter said. Um, he told me that uh, when, um, when, when this happens, a lot of the time the, the person gets the offer and says, I just checked this out with my spouse. And it, how could you not have, you know, if you're so I, I always deep. wonder about those relationships. <laughs> <laughs> How did this not come not up earlier? Do you guys not talking <laughs> to each other? Because you've been in this interview process for like three months now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is crazy. Right? I mean, it's lengthy. You're likely to be doing a lot of the interviews in your personal time rather than in your office. So how does the spouse not know? Right. But apparently that does come up, which always... <laughs> It tickles me when I hear stories like that. (laughs) So I'm keen to hear from you. What do you think are the top three skills required for someone to be in healthcare compliance? Okay, so it's tough to pick just three, I think. But I think 
I think number one for me would be you need to be a perpetual learner. I think you can't be successful in this field if you're not willing to be constantly seeking new information Mm -hmm. to stay on top of, Mm -hmm. of your game. So um, I mean, I am that nerd who I loved school all the way through mm-hmm. school. If someone would pay me to just go to school forever, I would do it. <laughs> so I kind of love that aspect of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's if you're someone who just wants to sit on your laurels and think that you'll be good, it's not the mm-hmm. right area for you. Um, I think you need to be a collaborator. It's probably the second thing I would say because... I mean, we, we have to take on initiatives um, that really require the, the buy-in and the, the um, contribution of people across an organization who don't have any, um, they don't work for us, you know, they just work with us. And, and so how are you going to build that team that you need to build to accomplish your compliance goals across that team? So, I mean... Mm-hmm. You know, kind of when I was talking about why I went into this, I mean, I, I just love people. Like, I, I like to spend my whole day with people. And so I think that comes across if people feel mm. like want to have a good relationship and build, you know, like I, Ellen Hunt, um, who mm. I know we both know, um, you know, she did a leadership presentation for my little compliance group. And we talked about qualities that are important in healthcare leadership and that whole willingness to um, see the whole picture and make those connections was one of the things she emphasized so that you know you should know like what are the strategic goals of the other people on the leadership team so that you can be supportive and helpful to them to build that two-way street so that then they're gonna they're going to help you even though they don't have to you know mm. um, so I think collab- collaborative um, skills are are probably the second thing and then the third thing I would say is maybe just self-assurance. Um, you, you have to have kind of, you have to kind of be okay with yourself because mm. you're going to have to say things people don't want to hear sometimes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people are, aren't going to be happy with you because of a message you have to deliver about, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I, I try to be as collaborative and supportive of a business strategy as I can, but there are still going to be times where, yeah, have to say, you know, this is a no. Mm-hmm. And, and so you have to be okay with that. And also that whole, you know, you can work to combat it, but you're still going to have to some extent that like, oh, here comes the compliance officer, like what's, you know, what's the problem now kind of, um, you know, you need to be, you need to be confident. Um, I, one of my favorite books is, is the four agreements. I don't know if you ever read the four agreements. We, we, we actually have, um, a two part series on the podcast about that. I think that's before you found us. Um, so one of our previous great woman in compliance, which she's, she's a current in terms of continuing to be a, a quick, um, Cynthia uh, actually talked about that for her um, episodes and uh, I read that um, after her recommendation to me um, some time ago. So one so of the... find that one. Yeah. Um, the do not take things personally yes. one was one that I, uh, I, I really struggle with. I'm someone that really 
likes to be liked. And so, <laughs> be you, I get it. You sound like a dork for saying it, but then it's kind of common sense. Well, who wants to be disliked? <laughs> so, um, that that rule in the book, I think, is really helpful for compliance officers in that self-assurance aspect yep. is that in the moment when someone's having a go at you or it feels like they're having a go at you as the compliance officer, realistically, they know in that moment, that heated moment, that you're not the one who made the rule or the law um, or that doesn't trust them but they need to vent their energy somehow. They need to be heard. And so sometimes you've just got to sit there and let that steam go out. Was that what you were getting at with the book? Yeah, yeah, for yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just yeah. think that you're going to have days, you know, or weeks, depending on what's going on, where sometimes you just feel friction and and there's tension. And, there, mm-hmm. and you know, I think there has to be to some degree constructive dissonance you know, mm-hmm. between compliance and operations and you have to be okay with that and mm-hmm. not take it personally. So that, yeah, that's exactly where I was going with that is that I try to, I mean, I, I like the other, the other three agreements are great for compliance officers too. Mm-hmm. Like you know, don't, don't make assumptions is great. Oh, as yes. Well, you yes. know, because I think, you know, things are going to be put in front of you and sometimes it's easy to make an assumption about what's going on and, you know, we need to avoid that too. So I think, mm. I think that book is highly recommended reading for all compliance officers. You know? Super. Um, we, but yeah, so that's what I would say. Perpetual learner, collaboration, yeah. and self-assuredness and not taking things personally, I think, are the top three I would pick. But this is one where awesome. I want to ask you what yours are. Yeah. I wrote an article a little while back on what I thought were the top three characteristics of a great woman in compliance. And uh, you selected two out of my three. Um, so the lifelong learner was was one of them. Um, and then I think we had crossover in respect of the um, the the second one. Um, uh, sorry, the... Uh, the third one in, term, in terms of the, the self-assurance, which was that they have a quiet confidence. They're not arrogant, um, but they know what they stand for and they know who they are. And then my other one was um, uh, that they send the elevator back down, which of course oh, was the that. inspiration for um, for the title of our book. Yeah, and I think that's true for all women, no matter what field you're in. Mm-hmm. You know, not just women, but even more importantly, women. That, you know, I think it's, it's hard to, break into the executive level in any field. So I love that. I think mm. that's a great, a great one to have for any profession. So. Super. Thank you for that. I know you follow uh, best practices and are informed by DOJ guidance. I'd love to hear what is a recent change you've made to your compliance program to take into account the slew of guidance we received during the pandemic? I think probably for me, the biggest one, because yeah, I do work in the private equity world. So there's a mm-hmm. lot of M&A going on all the time. Mm-hmm. So I think due diligence has changed significantly um, mm. because if you are looking at partnering with a new organization, there's so many things you need to take a look at from whether they've done a good job handling any relief funding that they've applied for and received um, to, you know, in, in healthcare, you know, things like telehealth, have they done a decent job at following the new regulations, have they been auditing their telehealth documentation claims so that that's all in mm-hmm. order? Um, 
clinical adherence to COVID precautions. You know, I've, um, you need to look if you're, say you're looking at a physician practice or something, you know, how have they handled it with their teams? You know, are you going to have issues with uh, employee liability issues or OSHA issues mm. or, you know, there's just, there's so many areas that companies have had to pivot and grow during this pandemic that now when you're evaluating a company, you have to also see how successful they've been with, with doing all of that. Mm. I think that's probably the biggest thing I would say. Awesome. Thank you for that. And I think we're seeing uh, ESG, which is environmental social governance, as an emerging topic of interest in compliance. How do you see this affecting healthcare companies? Well, I mean, I think some of it is the, you know, the general ways that it's affecting everyone. I mean, I think, you know, you want to be associated with organizations that are making an effort, like that have a, a, a diversity and inclusion committee that are committed to the same kinds of social goals that mm. that your organization is or that you personally have, um, especially in healthcare, you know, there's a, I mean, population health has, is not new, right? But mm. it, it seems to be gaining momentum, especially with ESG. And so um, to be successful as a healthcare organization, I think you really should be caring about the health and wellness of the community that you're mm-hmm. in. So, you know, is there volunteerism? Is there support of those efforts in in the community that the organization is in? But it's interesting from a compliance, purely compliance standpoint, you know, I was thinking about how, you know, this is not new either, but it really fits into this ESG um, dynamic is, you know, with our enforcement, I think there has always been this, tendency to, you know, let's just say it's your your top performing salesperson or it's a surgeon, you know, are you giving them more leeway for violating policy and procedure than you would mm-hmm. an administrative assistant, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and what does that say to everyone else in your organization if that's mm-hmm. the case? And you know, so I always try to emphasize that with any organization that I work with, that you have to be consistent. And if you're going to make a policy, you better think about how that policy applies to every level of your organization, because you have to be willing to make that consistent, because I think that's where we can really go wrong from a compliance perspective. So. Mm. I think that's right. The, the consistent discipline or disciplining of what I call high value um, employees is a, a perennial problem because we seem to be, I think, even in compliance, somewhat reticent to um, discipline the, you know, the star sales people or the very senior people and heaven help you if they happen to be both of those things. Mm-hmm. And we also have that in, in terms of coverage of the compliance program. So historically, it was a problem that senior management would sort of get compliance training waived. And it just seems like the most ridiculous thing because, you um, OECD studies show every single time pretty much that they release uh, their statistics, senior management is oftentimes implicated in the misconduct. um, And if they're not, they typically are aware of it. So they know that it's happening under their nose and they're choosing not to do something about it. So that's like the worst category pretty much to to choose not to apply or the same rigor of your program standards to. And the same goes for disciplinary action and so the question then becomes 
how are you ensuring um, consistency of discipline uh, across your company? Do you have a repository where that information is viewable by the people who make the disciplinary action uh, decisions? Do you have a disciplinary um, guidance or a framework that helps people in different regions understand, okay, if it's this type of um, a breach or issue, what is, what is the spectrum of punishment we should be doling out within what's legal in, in that particular jurisdiction, uh, but making it proportionate to what you might receive for the same failure in another area of the company. And so for compliance programs that don't already have this partnership in place with typically HR, it's a, a great thing to review um, to see uh, whether your disciplinary action is in fact consistent across titles and designations, but as well as as regions. Mm-hmm. I hadn't really thought about it from the regional standpoint, but that's a really good point as well. And, you know, I know you were talking about, you know, you've been doing a lot of uh, work on, you know, getting people to report within companies. And, and I think this is, this is a big factor, you know, because people see this, you know, mm-hmm. and if you're inconsistent, then you don't have, you don't have trust in your organization. Mm-hmm. And then people are not going to want to come, come to you or anyone with problems if they feel like, oh, well, you know, nothing, they're not going to do anything to this person or that person. Mm-hmm. So it's not even worth speaking up. And, you know, so I, I think, I think it's important on that front too. Yeah, I think that that's a great point. I think uh, transparency and lack of hypocrisy from the compliance program are hugely part of the pillars that form organizational trust. So if you and compliance cannot walk the walk and be uh, an ethical player, then what are your people thinking in the organization? Well, that brings us to my last question for you, which is what areas do you see it important to upskill in to set you up for the next five years as a chief compliance officer? What should people be doing? Well, I mean, I kind of go back to my important qualities Mm -hmm. for a compliance officer because I think you have to upskill your learning is Mm -hmm. probably the biggest thing because I just think change, pace of change has picked up and the world is just a different place every month recently, you know, mm-hmm. and I just think you need to make a commitment to that continuous learning and value it. I mean, I know, I know it's easy to get into a rut where you say, oh, I'm, I'm so busy, you know, I don't have time to take a webinar or read a book or, you know, and, and I think that it's actually it's so valuable that it should be scheduled on your calendar, just like any other important thing that you do during your week, because um, I, I just think we're, you're not going to be able to maintain your skills and stay on top of your profession uh, over the next five years if you're not looking for that learning. And I think in compliance, it's not always, I think you need to find, you need to because we don't have all the time in the world because we Mm -hmm. are busy. You need to invest the time in being selective and seeking out education that is really going to be valuable to Mm -hmm. you, to your organization. Um, So I don't mean like, you know, spend your whole day reading and take every webinar that pops up in your Mm -hmm. email. You you need to really curate Mm -hmm. your list of what you're going to read and what you're going to watch and what you're going to do. 
Um, there was this great article I wish I had written down. Um, the, it was a New York Times article recently. Mm-hmm. Um, it was going around on LinkedIn. Now I now I feel bad that I didn't think of this. Um, it's okay. It down, but it was talking about the attention economy mm-hmm. and how you know everyone's social media, you know, at your office, everyone, mm-hmm. everyone's competing for your attention. And the one mm-hmm. statement that really struck me was that every time you decide to pay attention to something, you're deciding to ignore something else. Ah, the opportunity cost. Very Mm -hmm. impactful to Mm -hmm. me. So I've been trying to be really conscious of what do I need to know more about, whether it's Mm -hmm. maybe it's cybersecurity because Mm -hmm. it's such a hot issue right now, right? And it's it's becoming more of a risk. So do you know enough about cybersecurity? You You don't have to be the world's foremost expert on it as a compliance officer, but you should know quite a bit about it. And you should know who are the foremost experts so that, I, you know who to reach out to when you've got a question. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, I think for me, that's the, if I would recommend upskilling, I think is the, I love that term. You know, I would say, you know, think about the areas you maybe it's privacy, maybe it's security, maybe it's um, risk assessment, whatever it is that you feel is an area of opportunity for yourself. Get it on the calendar, seek out some really good ways to learn more about it and, and make it a priority. Um, and, and so that's why, I mean, that's why I love Great Women in Compliance or, oh. or, or MentorCore, you know, mm-hmm. like I know we've both been doing some mm-hmm. stuff with MentorCore. You know, both of those things to me are, I mean, gosh, there's someone who's just offering you really good content. You know, are you aware of it? Or, mm-hmm. you know, with, with my group, uh, within Wad Capital, you know, I've created kind of a little compliance forum of all of our compliance teams across mm. the portfolio. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I will, I will bring people in specifically to speak to us on things that are really relevant to just our group, you know, or, mm-hmm. you know, like Ellen um, spoke to us once about leadership, or I'll bring mm-hmm. in someone to talk about vendor management, or mm-hmm. someone to talk about telehealth. But, mm-hmm. you know, it, any way that you can keep up with what's really important. Um, I think that's probably the skill that you need to hone on. Well, I love a lot of that, Mel. Um, obviously, I love the fact that you mentioned Great Women in Compliance podcast. Thank you for, for that. Um, and I think it's, a, it's an increasing trend that I'm seeing is compliance departments um, calling peers and saying, hey, I'd love it if you would come speak to my department on this. You don't need to pay $8,000 for some high profile speaker to tell their um, story a, a about ethics. Um, sometimes there might be someone, let's say you have a friend who's fantastic on the ESG side, you know that you're not so strong on it, but your team could benefit from hearing about it. So you call your friend and they turn up and do, you know, 30, 45 minute session on it. And that way you're sharing the knowledge. And um, I think that's fantastic to see. I'm seeing that for compliance weeks where compliance colleagues are being invited from outside companies to to join a compliance week or even to talk to management of a certain company so that management is hearing the compliance message from someone else. It's just not Mm -hmm. the the, the same face or maybe someone with a different area of expertise and angle that can help bring home the message maybe a little differently than you might be able to. Yeah, it's great. Um, Not this year, of course, because of the pandemic, but Mm. in 2019, I put together a couple of days of a symposium 
for our compliance folks. And it was so great because a lot of our executives and our board members participated. And then we brought in outside experts as speakers and we did a lot of roundtables and discussions. And I think it was great for the compliance team because they felt valued because all these, you know, people took the time to spend a couple of days talking mm-hmm. about these things. So um, I'm hoping, you know, for some more in-person interaction again this year, but I mean, even other little things like, you know, like Scott Becker is always, you know, he'll post like, you know, 40, 40 great interviews. Mm-hmm. If you have, you know, say, say I'm cooking dinner or something, mm-hmm. you know, if you just put it, put it on your Alexa, you know, and yeah. listen, to, listen to a bunch of them. Because I think the other thing is we all get myopic in our own mm-hmm. little organization. And just to hear what other people in your field are thinking about mm-hmm. is also so valuable because, you know, you, you do kind of get lost in the weeds sometimes. So I think it's good just to cast a wide net and hear what yeah. people are talking about in your industry so that, you know, maybe you'll be like, oh, I never thought about that. You know, that's something I should look more into or so I, I don't, I think, I think it's fun too, mm-hmm. but, um, but I, yeah, I, I would say that that's been some of the most just reaching out to colleagues and other like yourself or, you know, like uh, I had a great conversation with Adam Balfour the other day, who I had never <laughs> yep, met yep. before, um, just because I thought, hey, that he seems, you know, I love his content. Yeah. You know, I, I want cool. to reach out to him and connect. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I think there's so much you can do to keep learning and be stimulated by other thoughts from outside your own brain, which gets a little old sometimes. <laughs> totally. And it's, it's just one brain, right? Like no matter how beautiful your brain is, multiple brains uh, has got to be greater than one brain. So, and, and then of course there's the, the power and diversity, right? So someone with my background um, is going to have a, a totally different way of thinking than the average person who's lived in the same small town in Massachusetts their entire life. And that doesn't necessarily mean that one of the, the two of us is better, but it does mean that we're different. And so if we apply the multiple permutations of thought um, to a, a challenge, we're going to end up more likely to come up with a solution than if just one was working on it. So great advice there. And I would take the opportunity to say not just about our podcast, but in general, if there is a resource that you really love, have you told anyone about it? Have you told your internal colleagues? Have you told your friends working in compliance outside of uh, your own company? Recommending resources is a fantastic way to keep up your networking connections, right? Because you don't want to just send someone a, a lame message saying, hi, how are you doing? Just to, you know, do your annual check-in. If you share something of value with them, that is a legitimate reason to get in touch, keep your network strong. So thank you. I love you. that. That's great advice. Thank you for, for prompting it, Mel. That was excellent. And we are now at the end of your fantastic interview. Thank you so much for joining us and shedding more light on what it's like to work on the healthcare compliance side. And thank you for your listenership and being a, a friend of the podcast. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. I was, you know, again, so excited by the invite and, you know, I could pick your brain for a couple more hours. So, you know, we'll have to (laughs) schedule a virtual coffee or something for that. (laughs) Thank you so much for the compliment. And for those of you who listened to uh, the first episode in this series, with Donna Schneider the other week. Um, You'll know that I wrapped up with the first prong of a two-pronged communication campaign case study example that I did. And I'd like to share the second prong with you now. So the first one focused on 
the deterrent to speaking up of when people feel that it's futile, that nothing will be done about it if they make a report. The second prong really focuses on retaliation and accountability for retaliation. So um, my suggestion is to run a um, workshop session for which is targeted at managers in your company that does a step-by-step process of what to do when they receive a report. When we know that there is strong organizational trust in the company, people are more likely to go to their direct managers than the hotline to make a report. So you want to make sure that your staff know what to do in this instance so that they uh, essentially do it correctly. So um, I prepared a presentation with all of the steps and walked the, the managers through it. The key thing, uh, though, is I didn't just invite the, the managers. I invited everybody in the business, and that's for two reasons. One is that the managers of tomorrow are in your business right now, and so it's never too early to, to start learning. And the second is that I wanted everyone in the business to see managerial folks being held accountable and educated on the principle of non-retaliation. So everyone was included to see the step-by-step of how to receive a compliance report if you get one. Um, And uh, I collaborated with HR to make sure that in respect of an HR grievance that matched um, their general process as well. So that either way, if compliance got it or HR got it and we needed to cross-refer that I was still giving the correct information depending on the the type of issue that it was. And then, of course, we must remember that in the moment, many of us don't recall training that we received six months earlier, perhaps. So the key to this for afterwards was providing a just-in-time training. That is a step-by-step quick reference card that the manager can keep in their desk drawer or home office drawer, as the case may be, so that when the time comes that they do get a report, even if they can't remember all of the steps in the training where they can't bring up my PowerPoint uh, slide deck from from that day, that they then have the summarized version um, of, of what they need to do Um, So that was things like, uh, you know, do not investigate yourself kind of thing, you know, ask for as much information as they're willing to provide, Um, you know, reassure them that we're going to look into this and that we take it seriously, thank them for making the report and so on. Um, And so that, my friends, is the uh, two-step case study to encourage speaking up based on uh, the empirical evidence indicating the, the two most problematic reasons why people don't. So that's it. Thank you very much for tuning in and uh, we will see you next time. Thank you all. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.